This morning, uh, we're going to continue in Mark chapter 10. I invite you to turn there. Mark chapter 10. And I think we're going to see, we're going to see further into the purpose of Jesus walking with his disciples, moving, moving from this, uh, this place of call to the place of mission. Let's begin reading in verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, hallelujah, three days later, he will rise again. Here Jesus is with his disciples and they are on the road going up to Jerusalem. It's interesting, this phrase, going up to Jerusalem, uh, is, is a, is a de description of actually the geography of Israel. How many of you have been to Israel before? Okay, so you know that, that Jerusalem actually is elevated. In fact, it's elevated dramatically from the floodplain of the Jordan River where Jesus and his disciples are traveling right now. They're going to end up in Jericho. We see that a little bit later in the scripture. And there they are in this, uh, this low ground. And Jerusalem climbs within about 20 miles to 3,300 feet. That's the elevation above uh, where they are right now. So they are going up to Jerusalem. But we also know that Jerusalem is, is known as the city of God. And so as they approach Jerusalem, there is something going on as well. Their senses are heightened. They anticipate something extraordinary as they enter the city of God. It's interesting, however, that uh, throughout the gospel of Mark, we see Jerusalem as a place of opposition to Jesus. If we, if we look back at, at Mark chapter 3 and chapter 7 and other places, we see that the scribes and the Pharisees have made this great effort to come from Jerusalem to meet Jesus and his disciples there in Galilee to oppose him. And so even as Jesus is taking his disciples and those others who are following with him to Jerusalem, they have to be anticipating 
something, something nefarious, something that will oppose Jesus. It's interesting that Mark includes this detail that Jesus is walking out on ahead of them. It's, um, I think perhaps we, we think, surely Jesus always kind of walked in front of them. But the truth is, no, he didn't. He sometimes was in the pack. Sometimes he actually sent the disciples on ahead of him. Like after he fed the 5,000, he sent the disciples on ahead of him. Here Mark details the fact that Jesus is walking out ahead of them. I think maybe that detail is related specifically to the destination. Knowing that Jerusalem is a hostile place concerning Jesus' ministry. And the scripture says here that they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. It's interesting here that the fact there, this amazement and then those who followed were fearful speaks of possibly the fact that there were two distinct groups here. I think it's reasonable to say that they may refer to the 12 disciples, but those who followed may indicate that there was a much larger group as well. And it, Mark says that they were amazed and fearful. Why? Why amazed? Why fearful? Well, honestly, it's, it's a little difficult to, to zero in exactly why, but I think we can, we can say uh, reasonably that Jesus' pace and his persistence in setting his course toward Jerusalem no doubt was likely brisk and very determined. And in viewing Knowing what was ahead of him, it's truly amazing that Jesus would be so purposeful in going to Jerusalem. Jesus knows that, that abuse of, of every kind, certainly death itself, lies ahead. And yet he does not lay back. He doesn't resist, but he pushes forward. Even in the even with a sense of, dare I say, eagerness? Is that possible? That Jesus, knowing what was ahead of him, was eager to get there? The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, the, the second half of verse 1 and beginning of verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. Hmm. And those, those who were following at a distance, for them, there is a sense of foreboding, this, this dread that perhaps is overshadowing their, their journey. Previously, look at it, verse 30 of this very same chapter. Uh, the disciples have said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, but he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Those who have followed him and left everything, they shall receive 
now a hundred times in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. Persecutions. This list of blessing for those who've left everything includes persecution. You see, when we follow Jesus, we know, we know that there is going to be hardship. We know that there's going to be sacrifice. We know there's even going to be persecution. And when we follow at a distance, we, we may find ourselves honestly dreading what is to come. And quite honestly, that's a natural response, right? None of us want to look forward to persecutions, but we press on. We press on because we are committed. But when we follow more closely, when we follow more closely to Jesus, we likely find amazement. Amazement that... (laughs) There is inside of us yet a resident joy that will accompany those persecutions that we know are coming. And we're able to lean into that even as we lean into God's embrace. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 is is one of my favorite verses throughout the entire scripture. And there Paul says, his aim, his aim is that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Who wouldn't want to know that, right? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Being conformed to his death. The fellowship of his suffering. Who would look forward to that? You see, the reality is that in that suffering, there is fellowship with Jesus to be found found that is not found anywhere else. Right there in the middle of that suffering, communion with Jesus that doesn't happen anywhere else. I know some of you have experienced that. You've experienced suffering in your life. And there's a broad swath as to what suffering can mean. But we know that in the midst of that, as we follow Jesus closely, there is fellowship with him in that suffering that we really don't find anywhere else. Peter writes in chapter 3 of his first epistle, Who is there to harm you? If you prove zealous for what is good, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. In Colossians chapter 1, the apostle Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is, what else? The church. And Jesus himself in Matthew 5, there there smack in the middle toward the end of the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, 
this pinnacle of scripture, Jesus himself says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, blessed are you when people insult and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. <laughs> for in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Is this some kind of crazy? I, I don't think so. This isn't sadism. No, it is the joy of standing firm in your faith and in your convictions. And it's the supernatural gift of God for those who follow him without reservation. It's the supernatural capability to put faith and principle above the threat of personal harm. It's a supernatural thing. Back to Mark 10, and, and again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Understand that this is a certainty. This is not a calculated risk on Jesus' part. The scripture says what is going to happen to him. It is absolutely certain this is going to take place. And this is the third time that Jesus has spoken to his disciples about his suffering. We know it today as the passion, the passion of Jesus. And here in Mark, we see the third reference to this. The first was in Mark chapter 8, immediately following, following Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, you remember that? And Jesus spoke there for the first time, foreshadowing his suffering. And then again in Mark chapter 9, after coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration, there with Peter, James, and John, and, and he spoke of his suffering there as well. And in each of these previous instances, the disciples did not understand the meaning of his statements concerning his death and resurrection. Look at verse 32 with me. Jesus is saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. It's here in chapter 10 that Jesus adds some detail that was not there previously. He adds that he will be handed over to the Gentiles and that they'll mock him and spit on him and scourge him. You see, the sting, the sting of rejection by his own people, the Jews, that sting of rejection is compounded by the fact that Jesus, their Messiah, will be handed over to the Gentiles. 
to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him. This rejection is hate, and hatred is intensified by the betrayal of his own people and placing him in the hands of the Gentiles. It's interesting that Mark adds these details here. Remember, this gospel, this gospel of Mark, was likely dictated by the apostle Peter. And Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 includes these details. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and, and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men who put him to death. Mark records in chapter 14 that after Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter followed at a distance. He followed at a distance and was present at his trial there in this kangaroo court that was assembled before the Sanhedrin. And Peter reflects on that in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 23, and being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You see, for a Jew, the ultimate disgrace is to be rejected by his own people. There's a great sense of identity wrapped up in being the people of God. Being rejected by them is great, great disgrace. But then adding to that, being humiliated by the Gentiles, knowing that he will be mocked as a king, spit upon as a dog and scourged as a criminal, Jesus has to not only anticipate but then experience his suffering. How many of us know that the anticipation of something that is dreadful is sometimes worse than the experience itself? Yeah. It takes great courage to press on and enter into a place in which you know you are going to suffer. Fear. Fear is something that I think all of us deal with from time to time. And it lives there in the anticipation. Its, it's catchphrase is, what if? What if? And it's a natural reaction, honestly, of, of, of mixed motives. It often has its way with us when we're not sure totally sure of our commitments. It keeps us from drawing near to Jesus because we think, what if? What if my, my friends think, think I'm crazy? 
What if my family rejects me? What if my, my co-workers ridicule me? Courage, on the other hand, is not the lack of fear. Understand that. But it is the determination to press through the fear. To press through the fear, to do the right thing, to complete the task, to, a, to accomplish the mission, to answer the call, and to obey regardless of the consequences. And Jesus shows resolute courage here, out in front, out in front of this fearful crowd. He finds the strength and determination to do the will of God. To, to do the Father's will is his laser focus. And anything else, it's just not an option. I think it's important for us to understand that if we want if we want the courage to walk with Jesus even on the way to the cross we also must become obsessed with the single-mindedness of doing the will of God regardless of the consequences Let's look at verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you, <laughs> you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized but to sit on my right and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. I think it's interesting here that each of these passion statements or these prophetic words that Jesus speaks about his suffering that is soon to happen to him is followed by an inappropriate response by these three disciples that were in his inner circle. These three who actually, quite honestly, should have known better. In Mark chapter 8, right after Peter recognizes Jesus as the Christ. He rebukes Jesus after his statement that he will soon suffer. And in Mark chapter 9, after, after uh, coming off the Mount of Transfiguration, John assumes the role of, 
of uh, a spokesman when he when he indirectly contested, contests with Jesus about the exorcist who cast out demons in Jesus' name, rebuking him because they didn't belong to the 12. And here in Mark chapter 10, James and John come together with this personal request. In Matthew chapter 20, we read that that uh, a, a, an account, a parallel account of the same event, um, Matthew records that Salome, the, the, the mother of James and John, actually approaches Jesus and speaks for them. And what's, what's at work here, more than likely, is that James and John likely put their mom up to that. Yeah. And although the request may have been mutual, Mark lets, lets the sons themselves speak. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. <laughs> and, you know, quite honestly, that's an open-ended request that is presumptuous under any circumstance. Lord, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. It kind of blows my mind that they would even go there. And yet Jesus actually is willing to listen to their request. Have you ever asked God for something that was presumptuous or maybe even foolish? Inappropriate, maybe? It's good to know. It's good to know that Jesus still listens how he will answer, however, is up to him. It's important to understand that Jesus' response is up to him. Now, we're going to take this up a little with greater detail when we get to Mark chapter 11, where Jesus speaks about, hey, you can ask anything you want, and it'll be done for you. Here, however, James and John want nothing less than to be on Jesus' right and left when he reigns in glory. What we see at work here is a, is a lust for greatness, a lust for greatness. Each wants to inherit position and power. Position, position is authority and the ability to make decisions. Power is wielding that authority and the ability to impose the consequences of that decision. And both, both reflect privilege and require responsibility. The naive see privilege, but the wise see responsibility. The cost of each of them is the consequence of their decisions. You see, a lust for greatness is kind of a two-sided coin. On the one side is ambition. And, and quite honestly, ambition can be good, right? We often, we often give accolades to those who are ambitious. In fact, even, even the Apostle Paul 
in writing to Timothy in chapter 3, says it's, it's a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work that he desires to do. That aspiration, that ambition is a good thing. But he quickly follows that with verse 2, where he says an overseer then must be above reproach. You see, there's cost. There's cost involved with ambition. And there is a great hazard because, because ambition can easily be corrupted. Corrupted by the preoccupation of self-advancement. On the other side of this coin is jealousy. And it's almost, jealousy is almost always corrupted with the preoccupation of self-advantage. I say almost always because it is possible to be jealous for the, the advancement of someone else. But Jesus, Jesus in this moment, responding to, he's again just shared what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem? And these two guys come with this crazy off-the-wall request. Jesus has the right to be frustrated with them. I, in Mark uh, chapter 9, he, he responds, I think, honestly, out of some level of frustration uh, in response to the the disciples' inability to cast out a demon. He says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? And it wouldn't have surprised me at all that he would say that to the disciples even now. But he doesn't. Instead, he chooses to teach them the meaning of true greatness by comparing the human standards of position and power with his standard of servanthood. Look at verse 38 with me. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. <laughs> Have your kids ever asked for a puppy? You don't know what you're asking. And Jesus follows the question with a question of his own. Do you realize? Do you realize what responsibility you're really asking for here? Do you understand the cost that you will pay for such a privilege? When I, when I was a, a young teenager, I had this conversation with the Lord. I was reading about David and his exploits. And I remember specifically saying to the Lord, Lord, I want to be like David. And surely on the face of that, that that's a great request, right? He was a man after God's own heart. But have you ever read the Psalms? <laughs> yeah. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You see, God's favor is not without cost. Very often that cost is our own. 
but always there is cost to God himself. We often ask with good intention, but in ignorance. We, we, the lyrics of, of some of the worship songs that we sing speak of an honest desire. I, Lord, I want to be close, close to your, your side where heaven is real and death is a lie. But hmm, when we look at those in Scripture, who were close to God, exceptionally close to God, we see those who suffer because of their devotion to God. It does not surprise them that Jesus responds to this request with the assurances that these sons of Zebedee will indeed suffer in similar ways to Jesus. You see, suffering, suffering is the common denominator for those who experience the depth of relationship with God that yields any kind of notoriety. James, James's zeal for Jesus, just so you know, resulted in the fact that he was the first of the 12 apostles to be martyred. He was killed by the sword on the order of King Herod Agrippa. John, John served the church in Jerusalem for many years and then moved to, to Ephesus. An oral tradition and legends about his ministry hold that John was taken captive to Rome during a great persecution and was thrown into a pot of boiling oil, but somehow emerged unhurt. And then he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And he supposedly lived out, he outlived all of the disciples, but there in exile. In verse 40, we see that Jesus does not give a promise he can't keep. Honestly, he's too close and he's too wise to do so. And it's important it's really important that we understand here that Jesus doesn't always give us what we ask for. Thank the Lord, right? I'm curious, how many of you gentlemen in the room prayed that God, please give me this woman as my wife prior to meeting the love of your life who's sitting next to you? Aren't we glad? Yes, Jesus doesn't always give us what we ask for. When we ask, honestly, the answer is his prerogative. It can be yes. It can be no. It can be wait. It can even be maybe. Maybe? Yeah. Second Chronicles, Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, that famous verse, do you remember what it says? If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. There's an if in that sentence. Maybe. Can be his response. 
And again, we'll talk more about that in Mark 11. Look at verse 41 with me. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. <laughs> you can almost see the disciples getting into a brawl here, right? They're indignant about these two guys who would have the gall to make that kind of request of Jesus. And Jesus quickly seizes the moment, calling them to himself. Jesus began to instruct them calling them to himself. You know, in the midst of the clash of ego among believers, the first reaction needs to be, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. My wife likes to say every once in a while, it's time for a come to Jesus meeting. Jesus brings us to the bottom line where we're forced from our lofty egos, where we're honestly very often poised to win the argument at all costs. He forces us from that place to our knees. And it's a great, it's a great rush to humility acknowledging his wisdom, his grace, and his sovereignty. You see, it's not about winning. It's about yielding to him. Jesus said to them, you know those who are recognized as rulers among the Gentiles. They lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Lord it over means to, to control or subjugate, to exercise dominion over. It's interesting, yesterday, um, the, the men's breakfast here, Felix uh, shared a message with us that spoke of domestic violence. And, and the common denominator across the spectrum is that domestic violence is about power and control. Here we see that model in the Gentiles, in the world. But that's not the model of authority or, or leadership that speaks of the kingdom of God. No, verse 43, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. The word servant this is, is, again, that word we get the word deacon from. It means to serve, yes, to wait on tables, more specifically to do the menial tasks. And the word slave, guess what that means? It means slave. <laughs> slave, yes. 
whether involuntarily or voluntarily, it means unqualified sense of subjection, of subservience. And the servant leader is the model of the leader in the church. And where there is power and authority in the church, it is meant for the provision and the protection of his body, of his people, meeting the needs of them and protecting others. The servant leader is called to walk in humility, grace, and truth. Humility, being totally aware that they don't have all the answers, but they are called to find them. Grace, extending the very, the very same thing that God has extended to them. And truth, resolute to understand and guard and promote the truth, to operate with integrity through and through. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not something to be sought. If it comes, if it comes, it comes through serving others, not dominating them. Verse 37, James and John seek to be dubbed the greatest. But Jesus reveals sacrifice and servanthood are the hallmarks of greatness. And verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, Jesus is indeed our model. He came to serve, to meet need, to bless, and he calls us to do the same. In John chapter 13, we read of Jesus there at the Last Supper. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, those words mean this is really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. The application is this. Following Jesus, yeah, it will include suffering. You can bank on it. Number two, Jesus will answer our prayers, <laughs> but as he wills. And number three, emulating him, following his example means taking up a life of serving others. The second half of Jesus' conclusion, concluding statement his statement of purpose here 
is doing what only Jesus could do. He brings us back to where we started. His relentless pursuit of fulfilling his very unique call to be the sacrifice for the sin of all. Of all who will acknowledge their need of forgiveness and receive the free gift of God and to give his life a ransom for many. The word ransom is, is really amazing. It, 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 it comes from a root word that means to loosen, to set free. It's the price for redeeming, a ransom paid for a slave or a captive. Peter writes in his first epistle, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like, like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inheriting, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Understand that this ransom is for many it's so much bigger, so much bigger than our simple personal experience with Jesus. It's not just for me. It's for the many, for all who will receive it. It's interesting. Pat shared with us during our worship time that that, that love for, of Jesus is indeed personal. But it's not just for us. It's for all who will receive it. Would you stand with me? This morning, I know many in this room, perhaps most in this room, are people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus for a long time. And there's much to be gained in this passage for us because it speaks honestly of the fact of what it means to truly follow Jesus. If the Lord spoke to you this morning concerning any of those things, acknowledge that before him and perhaps put a stake in the ground and acknowledge it before others as well. If you've never made a commitment to Jesus, understand that, that he came to be a ransom for you. Be a part of the many. Don't miss the opportunity to step forward and say, yes, Jesus, I receive because I'm in desperate need. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that that your provision is yes for many, a ransom for all. We thank you as well, Lord Jesus, that, that, what, that what that does for us is it sets us free then, free from sin, free from the power that clutches us, And then the freedom to follow you more precisely, more deliberately, to, yes, 
do as you have done to serve one another. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your delight in in your work in us is truly, yes, to bring salvation to us, to ransom us, but then also, Lord, to do your marvelous work in us that we might bear your image, that we become more and more like you. If you're at a place of decision-making this morning, whether you've walked with the Lord for a long time or, or are brand new at this, I invite you as, as we sing, make your way forward. There'll be somebody here to pray with you. And what that does is, yes, it indeed puts a stake in the ground and it says, Lord, I've decided today to follow you and to allow you to transform me.